This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm Pete Skamrock. So before we get to our conversation today, which is with Siobhan Zillis from Bloomberg Beta, we'd like to talk a little bit about Bot Day, which was yesterday, October 19th. Probably you're listening to this a little over a week later, which is how podcasts work. But Pete and I got back from Bot Day last night, and we want to take a little bit of time to reflect on what we learned at Bot Day, because it says a lot about what the bot community looks like and uh, what the bot landscape looks like. Yeah, it was uh, a pretty good turnout. I guess it filled up, right? So we yeah, put this, every seat. We've been at yeah, we've been advertising this on the podcast, and uh, I think it was oversubscribed, right? So every seat was full, and it was a great. It was an interesting mix of people. Uh, we weren't quite sure what to expect, whether it was going to be people who didn't, you know, were figuring out what bots were, uh, and mm-hmm. that's why they were coming to the conference, but it didn't quite seem that was the case, right, John? Yeah, that's right. So we asked the um, audience in a series of little poll questions at the outset about what they're working on and how they feel about bots. First of all, we asked how many people were building bots, and the show of hands suggested that probably like 80% of the people in the audience are doing some sort of hands-on work on bots. Yeah, but either... the in- I think the interesting thing is, uh, based on the people who registered, I mean, it wasn't all like bot startups. These were people at major companies who are building bots, I guess, or, or either for their customers or internally. Right, right. So what we saw was that uh, about 40% of the people registered were CXOs, and that's a, a weird way to put it. But they're CTOs, CIOs, CEOs, CMOs. Um, and those tended to be either, you know, founders of startups related to bots or people uh, who were maybe CTOs of bigger companies, as well as a lot of, uh, you know, outside of that, people who were sort of in CTOs offices from bigger companies. I think bots are in the point now where um, maybe the CEO has been reading about them in the Harvard Business Review and is uh, telling the CTO to develop a bot strategy. And then the CTO is uh, sending his or her team to things like this to figure out how to approach it. There was a wide array of uh, attendees. I mean, I talked to people from Charles Schwab, from Autodesk, Google, uh, all the way down to small startups uh, working on everything from AI uh, to retail. Uh, so it, it, it was a, a really diverse group um, and all kind of brought together by this interest in intelligent agents and bots. Yeah. So really, um, really interesting to see. We also asked them by show of hands, uh, how they felt about bots. And the vast majority of people uh, raised their hands to say that they were hopeful about bots, feel like bots are right around the corner, feel like bots are something they're going to invest in. A handful of people uh, raised their hands and said they're a little more skeptical. The interesting thing is that um, Pete and I often hear from listeners that we're pretty skeptical about bots on this podcast. I like to sort of control the hype. I think, uh, you know, bots are sometimes at risk of overheating a little bit. We've been talking about bots uh, feverishly for, for probably six months now. Um, and so I think it, it helps to, to take a reasonably you know, critical view of them. But the people in the audience were really into bots. And the interesting thing is that after a day of presentations about sort of technological strategy and commercial strategy, we asked again at the end um, whether people felt better about bots or worse about bots, having heard about them for like seven hours. And everyone in the room except like two people said they felt better about bots. Yeah. And so for people uh, who want a more optimistic uh, viewpoint on the future of bots, one quote that really jumped out at me, I, I tweeted a lot. I'm at, at Pete Scomrock, if anyone wants to follow <laughs> me or check out my uh, the tweets from the bot day event. So one quote that I tweeted out was, 
kick shows kick the messaging platform shows that bots do exist with real repeat engagement uh from mm -hmm. andy morrow's talk he said over 1 billion bot messages sent already in groups which is pretty amazing so that's a that's a setting where you do have bots interacting with people in group channels um and the engagement uh loop has really kicked off there yeah absolutely uh a lot of really good statistics from Andy's talk, by the way. Uh, Andy Morrow from Automat spoke about sort of uh, the bot platforms. He was part of a series of talks where we asked Andy and um, Amir Shavat from Slack each to sort of talk about his counterparts. So Andy is a bot builder, but we asked him to talk about the bot platforms that he interacts with. Amir works on a bot platform, and we asked him to survey the bot building tools. But so... Um, Andy's talk was uh, a, a really extraordinary, you know, encyclopedic uh, rundown of the of the bot platforms. And I was astonished by the scale of some of the platforms that he talked about, especially Kick, which I think tends to be overlooked by people our age because it's just hugely popular with younger people. I think he said 40% of uh, teenagers are on Kick in the US. Yeah, he had a funny chart where he put he laid up laid all the logos of all the messaging platforms next to each other. So I guess you could call them bot platforms. In my mind, I call them messaging platforms uh, just to avoid confusion. And all, all the logos were green or blue, which is kind of funny, except Kick was black. <laughs> <laughs> so he said they're innovating with their uh, color schemes, at least. Yeah, exactly. There's a room for a little bit more innovation uh, there. I wonder what green and blue say about messaging, if that's supposed to sort of be like a, a soothing color for messaging or... <laughs> Maybe they've been identified as like social colors or something like that. It, it could also be, I think there's an effect with um, Apple and they have the built-in logos maybe uh, of their messaging apps. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when you want to be the replacement for, you know, iMessage or something, maybe that's where mm -hmm. that came from. Right, right, right. Because you've been programmed to look for that sort of blue logo on your mm -hmm. phone. So we opened the program with a talk by Benedict Evans. He's a partner at Andreessen Horowitz. And... Um, in the last year or so, he's written some really intelligent essays about how bots could become what he has called the third runtime. So after uh, the mobile web and, you know, mobile apps, it's kind of a completely new third way for uh, users to communicate with services. Um, he didn't mention the third runtime in his uh, talk. He's kind of thinking about it in a slightly different way. But he, he, he took a, a broad kind of ecosystem view of this uh, and and said some interesting stuff about how, you know, Amazon developed uh, the Echo so that it wouldn't be dependent on Apple and Google to send it users. Yeah, he made a, an interesting point uh, where he said that the Amazon Echo is a kind of bot-driven unbundling of the Amazon app. And mm -hmm. so this is something in the tech world has been a topic of conversation for a number of years which is unbundling and bundling. So mm -hmm. every move by a big company in some way could be viewed as unbundling their app. So with mobile, uh, LinkedIn, for example, <laughs> spawned out a number of other sub apps where you would go do recruiting or you would uh, keep up with your contacts, things like that, um, to kind of split out. It's very hard in a small form factor to control the experience uh, mm -hmm. in, in a mobile app. So that's how we typically hear about unbundling. But it's interesting to think about bots as another way to unbundle um, a larger application and customize it for particular users. So after Benedict, uh, you spoke, Pete. 
and um, if I may say, it was a terrific talk. Uh, Pete gave an overview of AI for bots. A uh, really cool kind of look at you know the the question of like whether to uh, develop your own AI in house, buy AI from someone else. You looked at some some pros and cons for that stuff. Gave uh, I thought a really clear summary of what is a neural network, and um, I think the the most salient point for me was you you kind of said uh, watch where your data is coming from. It's become almost a point of pride for people who are doing machine learning to get their data in some really like funny arcane way. You know, you you get oblique data that's getting cast off from something else and then you use that to bootstrap a model. Um, I tweeted about it, uh, essentially he said, don't put that data in your model. You don't know where it's been. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and I think I hadn't, I don't really use these uh, third party um, AI for bots systems myself. So this is a chance for me to kick kick the tires on these a little bit and then compare them to what you could do if you're, you know, building your own. Uh, so the basic takeaway, I'll post the slides online, but one of the big takeaways for me was uh, it really is interesting to think through, do you build or buy um, the AI? Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, if you don't have an AI expert on your team, then the decision is a little easier and you, you probably have to buy it. But even for people who do know some machine learning and some AI, sometimes it may make sense to just use the third-party platforms. And one of the dangers when you are building your own is that you have to get your own data. If you're starting out building a new bot, you don't have enough users yet to mine that data, probably, mm -hmm. um, depending on what platform you're launching on. And so you may rely on some pre-trained models, uh, for example, that work with text data. And the way that people talk in messaging apps and the way that you get that data and parse it and pre-process it and tokenize it, if it's different from what your model was trained on, you can have some, you can hit some big uh, stumbling blocks. Right, right. And by the way, uh, you pointed out and several other speakers agreed, not everything needs AI. Uh, so for some things, decision trees are sufficient. Uh, for some things, you know, a human in the loop is still the best way to go. Sometimes applying AI to something that doesn't need AI produces a really ungainly and unpleasant, uh, you know, product. Yeah, it reminds me. I think somebody said, um, I, I forget exactly what I said, but somebody tweeted, quoted me saying something like, "You don't want to, you know, apply a chainsaw to butter," and and that that's what it can be like. If I mean, if you're building a simple bot to, you know, order <laughs> order pizza or to uh, right, right, for you instance, know, defer someone to uh, your website or something, it, it doesn't. It doesn't really need to be that complex. Um, right. And I think Andy Morrow disagreed. Uh, Amir agreed with that. Um, Andy, I think, was trying to tamp down. I think where we where you do hit an issue with that is if you are a bot startup and your whole marketing department is pushing that you are an AI solution for something, mm -hmm. and you don't actually have AI, that that I think is a problem, and that's that's a real risk right now. I think out there in the bot, bot startup world. Right, right. This idea of uh, perhaps over-promising came up a number of times as well. So, you know, avoiding that is really important. And several people have identified the success of the Amazon Echo as being one of essentially under-promising and over-delivering. You know, mm -hmm. it, never, it never said that it could answer any question, unlike Siri, which when, when Siri was released, the messaging was kind of like, you can ask Siri anything because it's incredibly intelligent. Turns out Siri can't answer just any question. Yeah, Kathy Pearl, who talked about UX uh, for bots, 
hit on that point a bunch of times about, you know, what are people's expectations uh, versus what are you doing? She played some hilarious, I thought, uh, Seinfeld yeah, clips yeah. of uh, it was Kramer pretending to be movie phone. Uh, uh -huh, if any uh -huh. of our listeners are old enough to remember. <laughs> uh, and and it, I hadn't heard that in years, but it was it really captured uh, the feeling of what it's like to talk to a lot of these bots. Absolutely. And in that clip, uh, Kramer keeps saying, you know, well, why don't you just tell me what movie you would like to watch instead of like, uh, you know, because George is, is putting in the touch tones and, and Kramer can't understand them. But that that winds up being a good mantra for this stuff. So yeah. the, the other uh, the other really good point uh, from Pete was was that we might get to this point where we have um, bots talking to other bots where you have essentially fuzzy APIs um, that fulfill the original kind of idea of the semantic web. With the semantic web, the idea was that everyone would just go and tag up all their stuff, and then the the markups would would sort of create you know a a, a structured uh, web that connects things to each other and and um, and makes it you know machine readable. In practice, of course, no one tagged their stuff. The semantic web isn't so much a thing that people talk about now. But finally, we have AI, machine learning, that can understand text and cluster things and link things together. So you raised this idea of fuzzy APIs that I, I really like. And I think, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about on this podcast a lot, the idea that bots could be informal, very open-ended APIs to essentially structured services underneath. It really feels like this is happening to me. So uh, maybe it's just because I, I spent a bunch of time thinking about some of the semantic web stuff in the past. And it felt flawed and it felt brittle to me when I dug into it back then. And it felt like Google really beat the semantic web with the power of big data and just having a lot of people um, link between things in a messier way. Um, and I think the same thing could be happening with bots because a lot of the talks talked when Amir talked about bot, you know, building frameworks uh, or bot building toolkits. Mm -hmm. uh, and the ones that I looked at for AI, a big functionality of a lot of these was uh, marking up entities in incoming messages from bot users, and then also trying to assign an intent. So you may have an intent like, I want to book a flight, or uh, the user is asking uh, what time it is, or is reporting an issue with their refrigerator or something like that. Those could all be intents. Right, right, right. Um, and that really, when you go back to the semantic web, the idea is everyone is responsible for marking up their web page or their service with the semantic metadata. And instead, now we have all these platforms that have AI that can take normal natural language and mark it up for you. Yeah, it's a really cool thought. And, and um, it's an interesting kind of twist on where people thought the web would be, uh, you know, 15 years later. So we've already mentioned Kathy Pearl. Uh, she gave a terrific talk on UI for bots, particularly voice user interfaces. Now, we've had Kathy on the podcast here a few weeks ago. She was one of our first guests. I think you could summarize uh, her talk as, you know, create the flow for your users that your users want, not, you know, don't, don't force your users into the flow that you want, which is great, you know, high-level advice for creating any kind of user interface. Yeah, the one quote she said everybody should remember if they remember anything was uh, design for how people actually talk, not for how you want them to talk. Right, right. And I think the second, the second much tweeted quote from her presentation, um, only ask your users questions to which you're able to provide an answer. 
So, you know, don't don't lead your users down rabbit holes that, you know, ultimately wind up confusing your bot. So after Kathy, we went into, you know, the the part two of our kind of uh, through the the mirror uh, talks after we had Andy Morrow, who's a bot builder, talk about bot platforms. We had Amir Shavat from Slack, who's with a bot platform, talk about bot tools. Now, this was a, a super useful, also encyclopedic talk uh, about kind of best practices for building bots. Uh, so he, he, you know, he repeated some of the good advice uh, from from other presenters as well, especially, you know, don't add AI to stuff that doesn't need AI. Don't overpromise your AI's capabilities. He, he talked a bit about, you know, good practices for actually working on this stuff, like read your logs. You'll, you'll see that, uh, that your bots, you know, get a lot of abuse. You'll be able to identify where your users kind of go off the rails and lose patience and uh, go, go into, you know, strange usage patterns. He mentioned that 90% of the bot builders that he's talked to say that their bots get hit on by their users. Yeah, that's something we've brought up before. I, th- I thought he, uh, he uh, the part, one part I really liked was he brought somebody up and he, when he talked about prototyping bots, he showed a few toolkits uh, that you can use to prototype bots, which I hadn't seen before. I thought those were interesting. And then he said, there's another way to prototype your bot. And he had somebody come up from the audience and he said, you can simulate the conversation with your bot by just talking to somebody and seeing how they respond. <laughs> and that's a really fast way to prototype. Um, so he asked the guy, he said, hello. Uh, the person said, hello. And he said, can you please give me your username and password for Facebook? <laughs> the guy just, you know, froze. And he said, no. Said, no. no. <laughs> and then Amir and, uh, said, thank you. And, then this is over. Yeah. And, and he said, that's kind of what a lot of bots, the first experience is like. And I got to admit, um, I feel a little guilty about this because so we just uh, put our web page up and opened up a wait list uh, by uh, plug skipflag.com if sure, you want to sure. sign up for our wait list. But it is, and I apologize to people out there, it is a little bit like that uh, because we, we gave a little context around what the product is, but it's still an alpha. We're still somewhat stealth. Uh, so there's not screenshots or anything up there yet. Um, we fully expect to do that soon. Um, but that is a tough thing for a lot of bot uh, companies is you either have to do a ton of work to communicate before someone even signs up uh, or you're in this awkward situation where you have to sign up not fully knowing what to expect. Right, right, right. There's also this interesting uh, sort of bot design pattern that, uh, that Amir mentioned. I'm curious if, if you've encountered it. He says a lot of bot developers that he works with use multiple AI services like Wit or Lewis or um, you know, API or Watson. They send uh, you know, data to a couple of, of these simultaneously, look at the results, and if the results disagree, then they know to kick to a human in the loop. Is that something that you've, that you've seen? Um, I've seen that in other fields. I, I did, uh, I used to do some Wall Street stuff years ago. And when you're working on financial trading or hedge funds, one of the secrets out there is all that data is actually pretty messy from different providers. Uh-huh. And so a common technique was to get multiple data providers uh, for financial data and, that, and do a similar trick of, you know, the truth is somewhere in the middle often. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the case of those services, I mean, I looked at these services for my talk as well, Lewis and Watson and, and Google services and a number of others. And I think part of the problem there is actually with the services themselves. Um, 
And so I hear from a lot of bot developers that they start with some of these services and then they have to augment them with their own tech because it may not fit your specific customer use case. It, like those entity extraction services aren't going to understand your product database, for example. Right, right, right. It's kind of a, you know, a model of models approach. And it's something we think about a lot in this uh, sort of political cycle, because, you know, we're, we're all looking at these polling averages for the best possible view of um, who, who's likely to win. So uh, we had a, a great panel as well. It was moderated by Ping Lee from Excel. And th this panel focused on talking with a handful of people who are essentially bot customers. These are technical strategists at bigger companies, more established companies who are thinking about implementing bots and AI. And they're thinking about, you know, do I build this capability in-house? What should I expect? What's really coming up short about bots right now? Like, what do I need to see before I'll implement bots, before I'll expose my customers to bots? And uh, the panelists were Ratnakar Lavu from Kohl's. He's the CTO of Kohl's department stores. Uh, Momin Mirza from Verizon, who works on strategy there. Uh, Sarah Amadian from Seamless Planet, uh, who's the, the CEO and, and founder. And Jack Hanlon, who's the VP of analytics at Jet.com. So all of these people are looking at bots, looking at AI, trying to figure out what their strategy should be for implementing it. Yeah, I had a hallway conversation uh, with Jack from Jet. And so Jet was actually acquired by Walmart, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. that's an interesting situation where they have about 2,000 people uh, on a Slack team, which is now uh, part of a much larger organization, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that's a pattern we've talked about as well with Slack where, uh, you know, it's, it's increasingly going in these larger companies possibly through sub-teams within those companies that are maybe more early adopters or innovative. Um, the quote that really jumped out at me from that panel that Jack had was he described Jet's internal Slack bots as unbelievably helpful knowledge assistants and anomaly detectors at scale. Um, hmm. And as they grew from like 100 to 2,000 employees, he said that having that augmented workforce with bots uh, was indispensable. Um, so those are some pretty strong statements. I think he was much more bullish internally. He was a little more cautious of externally. Um, you know, there's a fear of bots having a bad interaction with your customers. Yeah, one of the panelists was very explicit, you know, and said that the cost to the company of a single bad bot experience could never be made up for by, you know, savings from implementing bots. So they're they're quite reasonably very conservative about putting bots in front of their customers. And everyone on the panel said, you know, I'm excited about bots internally. As for external bots, uh, they just aren't there yet. Everyone seemed to sort of believe that they would get there to the point where you might see like a, a Verizon, you know, customer service bot. But uh, no one felt like it was imminent, you know, in the next ready in the next few months. Yeah. The other thing that I'm not sure how I feel about, uh, there was a quote from, um, Mumin Mirza from uh, Verizon, if you're going to build a bot and you want people to use it, you need to be where they are. And so that was in regards to uh, Ping, Ping asked the question about Facebook Workplace. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's good in the long run for if you're building a workplace bot to be across all those platforms. But I think probably for most bot startups, they're probably better off focusing on making it work on one platform first. Uh, it does feel like a lot of people are talking about going very multi-platform very early, 
Mm-hmm. Um, so for me personally, that I'm not sure if that strategy uh, would make sense. Uh, mm-hmm. If you're mm-hmm. spending all your time trying to integrate with 30 messenger platforms while you're figuring out your product, that might not be productive. And, and there was a call for, I guess, also echoing that concern, there uh, a number of folks called for more standards from the messaging platforms, which would make that process easier. Right, right, right. So after the panel, we had a, a brief talk from Joshua Browder. You've heard him on this podcast before. He came on also one of our, our very earliest episodes. Uh, he's the founder of Do Not Pay, which is the famous you know parking ticket bot. He told us yesterday that Do Not Pay has successfully challenged over 190,000 parking tickets and that the savings in total are around $5 million. And importantly, um, he's, he's taken this beyond just parking tickets. His website addresses uh, things like homeless assistance, uh, registration for, you know, medical assistance for people who have HIV. Um, He got a great applause line yesterday when he said that uh, because a lot of homeless people don't have access to computers, he advises them to go to the Apple store and use the, the computers there to use his bot. Yeah, I, 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 he is, he's a clever guy. <laughs> he really is. And he really is. It's a, it's a perfect move because, uh, you know, it would be a PR nightmare if uh, the story was Apple is kicking out homeless people trying to, you know, find a home. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he got uh, tons of applause. Was very popular. Um, also, just as a, is a, is a terrific speaker. Very articulate in, in thinking about uh, what he's doing. He's extending do not pay into a platform. Uh, I think he said it would launch soon. But the idea is that, you know, as, as he mentioned on our podcast, ultimately, he'd love to have a platform where anyone can develop legal bots that, that help people out with this kind of thing. Another point that got a lot of applause uh, was the, the next talk by uh, Lily Cheng from Microsoft. And uh, when she opened up her talk, I, th- I also mentioned this in my talk, uh, it happened the day before bot day. Microsoft Research announced uh, a breakthrough in voice recognition um, where they hit parity with human voice recognition uh, for transcription of conversations. Uh, and so she opened her talk by, you know, showing a Facebook post from, you know, a coworker at Microsoft. Uh, and people often forget, I mean, there's people behind these breakthroughs. And so she said, basically, that the guy working on that had been working on it for 25 years. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. it to, from the outside, it feels like these AI uh, advances are happening rapidly day by day. But some of them are, you know, decades in the making. That's right. Yeah. And it's it's something that that we often lose sight of in this community because it looks like these products uh, just, you know, come out of they, they spring fully formed out of uh, some God's forehead in Cupertino. But in reality, all of this stuff is years in the making and especially the fundamental advancements that go into it. Uh, like the AI, uh, like the you know the the really low level hardware that's made stuff possible, just takes decades and um, and involves you know some very dedicated engineers and scientists doing pretty basic work on it. Yeah, her, her talk. Uh, there were some really interesting elements to her talk. She she did a series of stories uh, mm-hmm. that were not not fully connected, but all very interesting. And I think give you a perspective on the way some of the ways that Microsoft and Microsoft Research are thinking about bots. Um, so she talked a bit about social uh, implications uh, of the network where your bot your messaging bot is deployed, mm-hmm. uh, and specifically around Tay. Um, and, and how some of these things can say a little bit more about us as communities, and as people. And 
the other thing that I thought was really interesting that jumped out at me was the way that they do these experiments. So really, Tay was an experiment, but there were many, many experiments before that in, in, mm -hmm. in Asia um, and in China. And the way that they iteratively approach, what they, for example, Microsoft Research may have something that can recognize dogs. So they said, right. you know what? We have this bot. We have, we have Chow Ice. Let's give it a new skill, the ability to recognize a picture of a dog. And we also have this human face recognizer. And let's, <laughs> uh, when you post a picture of your dog, now we'll tell you what, which of your friends that dog looks like. Right, right, right. right. And, and so it's really not the way you would think if you're building this massive, you know, Siri. If you say, Siri feels like the opposite of like a very almost waterfall designed in all likelihood right, um, right. Um, monolith. And instead, they're adding these weird, quirky abilities, which may evolve into something, um, you know, very practical. Right, right. Lily described Xiao Ice, which is Microsoft's really popular uh, Chinese bot that she talked about a bit on, on the podcast. Again, we've had a lot of these folks on the podcast. Um, Xiao Ice uh, kind of hands users back and forth between different little services. So um, underlying it is what Lily calls like a chit chat service. It's able to just kind of pass the time with users, ask them about what's going on, use their responses to further the conversation. But then it has other things like you can ask it math questions and it'll answer that. And then it'll watch for the user to sort of go back to what looks like chit chat. And then it returns to the chit chat service as well. So then it becomes easy to add these, these you know, new features to it that it can kind of introduce through the chit chat service. So it's, it's almost like it's solving its own internal discovery problem because you have the chit chat service that can kind of, you know, lead you along and, and, and um, make easy conversation with you, perhaps introduce other services. And then you have stuff like, you know, the dog photo recognition. Uh, Lily said that when they added dog photo recognition to Showice, that um, 1.7 million dog photos were sent in in just the first seven hours. So they're able to kind of introduce these new features to Shawice and, and they get huge traction. She also alluded to ideas in the workplace and she showed some experiments they did with delegating tasks to assistants, which were really interesting. Uh, and one of her points is that a lot of people don't feel comfortable delegating in general and they don't know when to delegate. Um, and so that's something that relates to when we talk about these scheduling assistants and things like that. There, there are some real blocks, right? It can be socially awkward uh, to ask someone to, you know, talk to your robot. Uh, to right, schedule. right. She did a little experiment uh, just in her own group to see how many people delegated things to a human assistant. And uh, the person who delegated the most tasks to the human assistant was another administrative assistant. So uh, someone in that kind of role knows what sorts of things are often delegated. But uh, the other people on the team weren't, yeah, didn't think immediately to, to delegate this stuff. Yeah. So it's not, it's not just an AI problem. There's a lot of social dynamics and social problems to work through with bots. Right, right. And Lily raised a very interesting one that had to do with, uh, with gender. So, you know, reflecting on the, uh, the main categories of people who undermined Tay, which was kind of the, the American counterpart to Shawice. And, and of course, we all, you know, saw that it, it, it got, uh, you know, really, really disrupted by a bunch of, uh, uh, sort of uh, subcommunities. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I, should I call them out by name? I don't think so. I don't. <laughs> no, I don't let's be not. Well, it. it uh, I mean, uh, Lily pointed out that that the the main kind of categories of people who messed with Tay were gamers, anti-feminists, Trump supporters, and tech entrepreneurs. 
Yeah. And this is this is actually not the people who messed with Tay, but the people who used Tay. She put up a graph and it looked like Mark Andreessen was actually the biggest <laughs> the biggest hub in the social network that was using Tay. I don't think he was uh, you know, trying to defeat it, but he he was um kind of the center of the of the tech user side. And then everyone else came from, you know, Reddit and 4chan. Uh, but there was a big overlap. So she she mentioned that, you know, bots tend to be women. And uh, this, this came up a few times yesterday. Uh, if you look at, you know, Siri and the voice in uh, in Echo, Alexa, um, and, and a bunch of other bots, they, they tend to be women. Lily said that they did some experiments at, at Microsoft, uh, some tests where um, they asked, you know, users to to assign a gender to the, the voice behind a, a bot. And users almost always said it's a woman, and it, they even thought it was a woman when they had a human typing out the answers as though it was a bot, and the human was a man. So they're kind of, um, you know, in making bots women, in in giving bots uh, female personas, bot creators are are going along with an existing sense that users tend to have that bots are women. Yeah, Lily's talk was really terrific, and I think it was a great way to wrap up the program and brought back to the humans that interact with bots and uh, ties into Kathy's uh, points of understanding your audience and understanding the way that people talk. And I think end to end, it was it was a pretty good program. It's a, if, if somebody w uh, didn't know what to do with bots and mm -hmm. just had to, you know, attend one event, this was the one to do it. Definitely. Also, it was such a pleasure to meet uh, so many people who said that they listened to this podcast at the conference. Um, you know, Pete and I record these usually over a Google Hangout. We see each other's faces, but for the most part, we're just talking into the ether. And uh, podcast stats, by the way, are very primitive, so it's hard to know how many people are listening. We can tell that it's growing and that some people are listening, but there's nothing like actually meeting the people who are listening to this stuff. And it, it was just a it's just a, an enormous pleasure to um, to hear from all of you. So uh, to those of you who said hey to us yesterday, hey, back to you. It was great seeing everybody and. You know, I started talking about what my company is doing a little bit more, and a lot of people in the audience, you know, came up and wanted to talk about that as well. So, if you are thinking about bots and knowledge in the workplace, uh, feel free to reach out to me. Very cool. Well, let's move on to our interview segment. Our guest today is Siobhan Zillis. She's a partner at Bloomberg Beta, who's done a lot of really excellent thinking and writing about artificial intelligence and the impact that it'll have on practically everything but especially on the way that we work. Welcome, Siobhan. Good to have you on. Hey, guys. So you've written extensively about uh, what you're calling um, machine intelligence 2.0, and that mm -hmm. includes uh, bots, or you, you call them agents, actually. Uh, so yep. where, where do agents fit into this whole landscape of artificial intelligence or, or machine intelligence? Sure. So... You know, one of the reasons we publish this, you know, landscape of anything and everything happening in machine intelligence is in part to show how it changes year on year, right? So we published the first version of it almost two years ago, uh, the last one nine months ago, and we've got coming out one coming out at the end of this month. And one of the interesting differences between version one and version two is the emergence of this new category. And so we called it agents. And the reason for that was, you know, when I think about something like bots, you're kind of separating out two things. One is the ability to have this natural language interface. 
But for me, and, and you know, I'm not going to underplay the importance of that new user interface. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people made fun of the graphical user interface when it first came out. Um, and so it's not to say that that's not new and important, but there's a second part of this, which is what sits behind that natural language interaction. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that we're a lot more curious and excited about. And so what separated out these agents from everything else for us was, you know, their ability to kind of take an intertemporal, intertemporal information and actually transact in a multi-stage way on our behalf, right? And that's kind of what we think about when we think of the word agent. And so, you know, that was kind of an exciting thing for us to realize was, you know, that's kind of a very new and interesting way to extend our capabilities is to have these things we can trust that act as extensions of ourselves. And that's what we think about when we think about agents. Interesting. In, in your landscape, uh, in the last version, you broke out this category of agents. So for people who aren't familiar uh, with this great landscape chart that you did of basically the market for artificial intelligence, you call it machine intelligence. The last version was 2.0. You have things like agents, autonomous systems, enterprise platforms, industries, and tech user tools. And so for the people in the bot audience, uh, the things like platforms, which includes OpenAI, Vicarious, Numenta, things like that, um, machine learning platforms like Datto, Amazon has a machine learning service, Google, Prediction.io. So there's things that bot builders would leverage from that category. And then the very narrow market segment that you just mentioned, agents, is broken down further into professional, personal, and OS interfaces. Could you say a little bit about how you're thinking of dividing those up? Yeah, sure. And so in, in this version of the landscape, it's actually going to be a bit more extensive when we think about sort of this agent or bot world, uh, just because there's been so much that's happened in the last year. But I'm going to step back for just one minute and kind of, you know, talk talk about the top level framework for how I think about these agents and bots. And, you know, there's this thing that's been going around in my head for a while, and it, it's I call it the CEO thesis. Um, and so, you know, the, the first agents that we saw pop up, you know, we they really sort of act as assistants in various different ways. And they either touch our personal lives or they touch our professional lives. But the word assistant really, really works well. And so that got me thinking about okay, well, you know, as this agent ecosystem evolves, what will it look like? Will it be kind of, you know, the one agent to rule them all? Or will there be different agents for different categories of our lives? And, and the thing that kind of struck me was, you know, I started my career at IBM, you know, I looked up to Ginny Rometty, who's, who's now CEO of IBM. And, you know, she's super, super smart and put together. And the one thing I noticed is she, on top of all of that, she had this unbelievable support staff. Hmm. Um, and so every Fortune 500 CEO has this army of support staff that for the most part is atomized into different categories, right? And so when you think about this logically, it's a handler who makes sure you're in the right place at the right time. It's a scheduler who's going to set up all your meetings. You know, often people have copy editors and speech writers. They'll have an analyst that keeps them up to date on various things. And so that's kind of the array of, um, you know, sort of these professional assistants. And so if we, if we look at that professional assistant box, it kind of breaks down into those categories. It's, you know, those portions of your professional life that are very important, but maybe not the thing that you're most unique at. Um, and, and I do mm. think that those will kind of break down into those individual skill types and categories. Uh, and then, you know, of course, bleeding into the personal life, I think the, the CEO analogy holds because, you know, a lot of these Fortune 500 CEOs are going to have, you know, a personal shopper or a driver or somebody to remind them about all of these other categories of their lives. And so, 
that's kind of the rough way I, I've looked at this and I've broken it down, which is, you know, these individual tasks that have very, very different interaction paradigms. You need very different, you need access to very different types of data to execute your task. Um, that's how it's broken down on the prior landscape. And that's how I think it will break down in the future landscape. I like this idea. It's kind of, you, you kind of have the sense that there's a bit of a flattening of, uh, you know, these kinds of assistant positions within a lot of companies. Um, there used to be a much bigger you know, spread between the kinds of support, the kind of staff, the kinds of resources that are available uh -huh. to big executives versus kind of mid-level people. But now everyone has yeah. access to all the world's information on the internet. Everyone has access to services like email. I mean, you compare the degree to which everyone basically does their own correspondence and data entry today versus yeah. what an executive would have done in 1980 when you had like a secretary typing your, you know, your letters for you. Um, right. Do you see these kinds of services, especially the professional ones, coming into the workplace and replacing humans? Or do you see them providing new services to workers who maybe haven't benefited from the, the service of a personal assistant or a scheduler or, or a copywriter or something like that? So in the long, we can talk about the short term and we can talk about the long term. So in the short term, one of the things that's been really wonderful about this is you are now just dramatically lowering the price point of these capabilities such that all of the rest of people who are doing knowledge work, for example, mm -hmm. um, can spend more of the day on the thing that they're really special at and less of the day on the administrative tasks. And it was never economical to do that before, right? Because, you know, it just for a CEO that's paid in the millions of dollars a year, of course, you're going to pay a whole bunch of money to, to have support staff there. But that doesn't that doesn't scale down to even somebody like me, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the lovely things here is, is with these assistants, you're now just democratizing access, right? Mm -hmm. You know, everybody can have something that's going to help them schedule meetings in their calendar now for not a lot of money, right? And that democratiz democratization, I think, is this wonderful thing because, you know, one of the most depressing things is I think about a lot of my friends who left college and went into the workforce. If I ask them, you know, how much of the day do you actually spend on the thing that you're really excited about that you're really mm -hmm. special at? That number is often between, you know, 10 and 40 or even max 10 and 50%, right? Mm -hmm. And so my hope with a lot of these tools is, you know, it now comes down to a price point where we can all get that percentage up to 70 or 80%, right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't see things like executive assistance going away, right? And one of the reasons is, there's still a lot of fault in these systems, right? And so let's take schedulers, for example. Um, you know, if you have an executive assistant, they have very intimate knowledge about what your schedule looks like, what your preferences are. And, you know, they have a very good understanding of how that changes over time. Or if you are particularly stressed today, they might go ahead and change a meeting and move it to another mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, again, any of these machine intelligence systems aren't necessarily, you know, going to be able to do that. And they don't understand certain sensitivities like, you know, okay, I know I'm busy on this day, but this is the most important person to me and I can't screw this up and then I need to treat this with care, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's that level of customization and those, those soft skills and that high touch element that I don't think any of these um, agents are going to have in the short term. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously in the long term, if we look ahead 10, 15, 20 years, chances are we do have these agents that take care of a lot of that for us. And so maybe we don't have executive assistance by then. But um, I think for anyone that's in the category, and I mean this in the most loving way, anyone in the category mm -hmm. of high maintenance, <laughs> you know, you're going to you're still going to need that very human touch. Right. But for for the people like us who make our own uh, calendar appointments, make our own airline reservations, uh, this is the beginning of a new era when we'll we'll be able to farm that out. Right, 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 right. And, and we've seen that happening. You made the point about, you know, secretaries doing even things like typing letters in the past, and that's mm -hmm. now moved to email. And, you know, we choose to do our, 
those tasks by ourselves because, you know, they become just so much easier. And so, mm -hmm. you know, when you're able to interact with these, these agents and offload 80% of it and just deal with that last 20% that requires customization, I think it's better for everybody. To follow up on that, uh, this is something we've talked about before on the podcast, which is there's a certain niche and you have some of these in your, uh, some of these startups around scheduling and things like that uh, in your market landscape. It's, they're in a strange spot because if the quality is bad, people blame, you know, if, if they screw up in a, uh, scheduling an appointment, people will fire their personal assistant and find a new one. When this is done at scale and the personal assistant is a brand, that's used, say, Clara or X.AI or one of these things, and it's used by um, a large number of people, they blame the brand, right? So everybody hates Comcast service, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, in that case, they're stuck with it. But in the case of these, these apps, uh, you see this all the time with mobile apps as well. People, you know, get sick of it or they blame it and they stop using it, right? Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that's a, that's a risk for these branded agents? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, it, it's interesting, you know, when I when I talk to certain friends about what potential you know tools they could use, I'm like, well, look, if you're the type of person that's in multiple different time zones, that's really hard to pin down. Actually, don't use one of these services because the services aren't built for that level of complexity yet. In a lot of different cases, right? And so they're going to mess up Pacific time and Eastern time, or they don't necessarily they can't read in your calendar that you're getting on a flight to a different place. And so you know, one of the things from a user perspective too is in the same way that you wouldn't set up a human employee to fail, be conscious of what the capabilities of, of the bot are, right? And on the second side of things, we're kind of at this, this very interesting period where, you know, not everybody has a Clara, not everybody has an X.AI. So, you know, it's me putting my preferences into the agent and the agent is often interacting with the human on the other end, right? And where we hit the magical point, and I'm so curious to see when this happens, is when there's bot-to-bot -bot interaction, right? Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. I've got a bot, mm -hmm. Pete, you've got a bot, and we've both programmed them with our preferences. And now, you know, neither of us have to have that human-to-bot interaction. They understand our parameters. They can have that, you know, 10 back-and-forth negotiation to find a, you know, slot in our calendars that works for both of us. And we don't feel the pain of any of it. Mm -hmm. That's the point in the ecosystem yeah, where I the, you know, the brand risk goes away and the real magic happens. Yeah, that's something that we've talked quite a bit about. So when you talk about multi-stage uh, interactions with bots, so there's the case of if you're in Slack, you know, you, you put in a request. Uh, it's kind of like Doodle for scheduling uh, calendar appointments where you fan out and kind of do a MapReduce-like operation uh, with people <laughs> and ask, hey, when is everybody available? And then coll collate and collect those. And the same thing with like these stand-up bots in Slack, where it asks everybody, hey, hey what'd you do today? Or uh, CareerLark does uh, micro-feedback. You know, how are you doing at work today? How are you feeling? Um, how was that meeting? Things like that. Um, so those are, those are interesting. And they're human-to-human -human interactions mediated by bots um, is maybe one category that we're seeing. And then there's this other more interesting category, I think, of bot-to-bot -bot interactions, and they could be personal, so my bot and your bot, or they could be more structural, where different workflow systems, your purchasing system interacts with the travel airline system, which interacts with the hotel system, mm -hmm. which knows your benefits. And this, is, this comes back to, I think, Tim Berners-Lee's vision of the semantic web, but as realized through bots. So maybe like bots are the new web, mm -hmm. right? Interesting, interesting, interesting. <laughs> I like that. Also, I'm going to steal MapReduce on people because that's hilarious. 
Yeah, and we're going to use bots are the new web as the like the pull quote for this episode of the podcast because that's good. So, so we were at Next Economy uh, yesterday, Siobhan, and and I had a conversation. Um, so Kevin Marks, who has you know been very involved for years in the web, he he was writing about this. There was a lot of talk at this conference about the Next Economy conference covers how the future of work and how it's changing. And I was amazed at the amount of AI in the conference and in the talks, uh, especially versus last year, was much more about the gig economy. And it feels like 2016 is the year of AI. Is that what you're seeing out in VC land? Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's um, the downside of all of this is I, I do think there's a tendency where so we're objectively we're in a hype cycle. And when you're in a hype cycle, there's a tendency to want to just throw AI at every problem, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with, without much thought to, you know, the care you would need to actually orchestrate one of these systems to do task well. And so I do think there's a little bit of a danger right now of, you know, viewing machine intelligence as the sort of panacea that's going to cure everything. Whereas, you know, in the same way that we went through a big data you know, disillusionment period where everyone was doing the big data. And so, okay, you know, <laughs> great, get this new varied information in a new place. And then the question is, okay, we made this attempt. Now, how do we make it truly useful? Right. right? Everyone and wound up so spending I'm, $50 million to accumulate all of their data. And then three years right. later, they're like, okay, we have all of our data. Now, what do we do with it? No one knows. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so we've got, you know, these new algorithms that can interact with data sets. But, you know, one of the things that's that's really complicated right now is unlike, you know, doing something like big data, which you could task your infrastructural team with, actually making useful products via machine intelligence is a much, much more complicated thing, right? Because Mm -hmm. what it requires is, first of all, understanding what data assets you do have, understanding what these new algorithmic capabilities can do in terms of outputs, and then actually thinking about the UI of your current systems and what problems you are solving now and what problems you potentially could be solving, right? And when you think about that process, that's a much more organization-wide process. And so one of the things we think about a lot at at the fund is, you know, part of this is technical revolution. Part of this is just organizational change mm-hmm. at your company or your enterprise, right? To, you know, bring all of these different parts of the organization together to make this broad sweeping decision. And, oh, hey, the kicker is once you've done all of that, you actually have to deal with the implications of the fact that you, for the first time, have software that's going to generate probabilistic outputs, right? Mm-hmm. That's not statically coded. You're, a- you're asking algorithms to make real and often subjective decisions, right? And so that's where I think we're going to get a little bit stuck. So everyone's talking about it, but really delivering on that reality is very complicated. How, how viable do you think it is realistically for you know, a, a venture-funded startup to make some advancement in AI that's you know, really meaningful beyond what you know, Google and Amazon and, and Microsoft and Facebook are able to do. Is this an area where startups can even compete meaningfully with uh, those big companies? It's kind of surprising how, how much all of the AI giants right now have carved out their own fiefdoms, right? They, have, mm-hmm. they each have very unique data sets to one another, and they're solving very different problems, whether or not you're talking about you know, a Facebook and dealing with your social and personal and news data or an Amazon that's dealing with logistical and now the in-home mm-hmm. or, you know, the Google that, that's got your web browsing data, right? They're, they're, they're in very separate places. And so it is insanely difficult to compete head to head with one of these companies in large part just because there's no way you're going to have a data advantage. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely mm-hmm. no way. You don't have the resources, you know, layer on their in-house teams and computational um you know, resources on top of the data resources. It's a really, really, really hard equation. Right, right. Google um, is able to just point their fire hose of users at any new product that they launch, right? And gather whatever data that they need to train their models. Exactly. And again, for any subset of things where Google can point their fire hose at it very easily and it's architected to, you know, you know build products in that sphere, 
wouldn't really recommend starting a company, right? Uh -huh. So Siobhan, you mentioned Facebook, Google, and these other big players uh, becoming these entities that are extremely difficult for anyone else to compete with in certain areas because they have such a, a, a huge wealth of data. And for machine learning startups and problems that they take on, it creates this kind of an unbalanced playing field. They also have a huge monopoly on the talent at this point. Um, and I, I saw, I heard some quote from, I think it was John Lilly was talking about a Stanford professor he talked to mentioned that over 80% of CS faculty positions are going unfilled right now because all these companies are hoovering up all the talent and all the AI talent is out of Facebook or out of Baidu or Google or one of these other places. So my impression is uh, the, some of the reaction to that has been the formation of things like OpenAI, which you're an advisor to. Could you tell us more about, about that and how that fits in? Oh, sure. Um, so, you know, just stepping back in general, I mean, this, this portion of my life is entirely devoted to sort of machine intelligence for good, right? And, you know, I'm coming from the core position of, you know, you basically can't play defense against any type of technology. You know, it's, it's going to happen. And so how can you basically orchestrate the best possible world for it? Right. And I think as it relates to, you know, AI related technologies, you know, there, there are three core components. The one is, you know, you always have to bet on humans on average are, are better good than bad. Right. So I think one of our responsibilities as society is to completely over invest in the instantiations of this technology that will have a positive effect on the world and, you know, just try to minimize the negative effects. Right. And you know, what we do in venture capital has a piece of that. What open AI is doing is a piece of that. And what, what government doing is, is absolutely a piece of that. The second piece that I think is particularly unique to sort of this machine intelligence world is ensuring a healthy democratization of power, right? Hmm. And we talked a little bit about the factors that power machine intelligence, and they are, you know, the underlying data, of course, the algorithmic advances, and then also the computational power, right? Um, and lastly, sort of that feedback loop of, okay, you've got these systems, now they're interacting with the users and the users are further enriching the data, right? And because you have these four things coupled, machine intelligence companies are disproportionately able to kind of create these great wells of power, right? It's just a, if you were to just let a system run unfettered, you would end up with sort of these monopolies and oligopolies more readily than you would in other ecosystems. So I think ensure, society actually has to take you know, some significant thought for how to ensure democratization of power within the machine intelligence world. And I think, again, entities like OpenAI, like Miri, that are trying to make things open, you know, luckily we have, you know, in academia, people love to publish, they love to share. And so I think OpenAI is absolutely a step in the right direction from a democratization perspective. And, you know, we, we hope they do well and we hope we see other things like it, right? Because I, I just think it is a net positive. And the last piece of what I think we have to do just as a society is, the pace of change is increasing really significantly, right? And, you know, you look at something like self-driving cars, and that's coming up on us a lot more quickly than anyone would have anticipated even two or three years ago, right? And so the degree to which we can have entities that try to front load public discussion and regulation around responsible regulation and, and basically organizational change around the you know, the disruption that machine intelligence will cause is a really, really good thing. The, the last year or so has seen a lot of really interesting kind of uh, market or game theory in the open source uh, machine learning libraries yep. and frameworks, right? You saw that, you know, Theano and Cafe and Scikit-Learn all had a lot of support, but somewhat fragmented, like different companies supported different open source frameworks. And then Google came along and just threw down TensorFlow. And it was <laughs> it was like this, this, you know, giant black hole opened in the corner of the room. And 
everyone yeah. started getting sucked into that. Um, it seems like uh, like a lot of what's behind OpenAI is kind of this jolt uh, of of fear that everyone in the industry outside of Google has gotten when they've seen how much uh, strength Google has in this area and how much community they're able to build around their library. That's one of the amazing things for me, an eye-opening moment yesterday at Next Economy was hearing Reid Hoffman asking at a conference about economics, asking about TensorFlow, right? So mm -hmm. this, I, I've never seen something move so quickly. I mean, the cloud wave and the mobile wave, those were, you mentioned this is, uh, we're in the middle of this hype wave, but it's, it's pretty astonishing to be at an, uh, basically an economics conference and have people talking about TensorFlow and neural networks. Right. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Even my friends outside of tech are like, what is, you know, what is this TensorFlow thing? And I'm like, wow, it's really cool that this has, you know, gotten the mind share of, you know, it's a surprisingly large proportion of the population. And, you know, that, that gets to one thing that we've seen. It's, it's definitely the closest thing we've ever seen to a free lunch, I think, in technology, right? Mm -hmm. And TensorFlow is a fantastic step forward in terms of, you know, people being able to experiment and prototype and, you know, basically take that first step into using machine intelligence, either for their own personal projects or at their organizations. And so I think that's, you know, an absolutely wonderful thing. Um, one of the things that has to happen next is, again, that that more thoughtful organizational change around it. And so I, I'm, I'm not taking a pot shot at Google at all. I think, you know, it, I think it was a difficult decision for them to make to even put such a fantastic technology out there. I think it's worked really well for them in terms of mm -hmm. getting, you know, let's say machine intelligence mindshare and developer mindshare sort of aligned behind TensorFlow. And we all know that talent is one of the big things that people are fighting for in this ecosystem. But, you know, it's a truly ex excellent technology. And the, the big next step here is, you know, transitioning away from using something like that to prototype out something new to putting that at in production at large scale mm -hmm. and being able to sell, for example, if you're at a Fortune 500 company, your C-suite executives on the fact that you should be using TensorFlow and you should be using machine learning, you know, basically frameworks embedded in your technology that touches end users, right? And so that's the thing I'm hoping we see a lot more evolution in the, in the next year. But, you know, again, that doesn't downplay any of the open source technologies that you know, that are that are touching the world right now. And, you know, if I think about the biggest difference between the machine intelligence 2.0 landscape and the one that's coming out now, it's that ML stack, that toolkit of open source libraries has just exploded. Yeah. And there's so many new capabilities out there that thoughtful people can integrate. And it's a really beautiful thing to see. And I think, you know, part of the reason we're seeing this too is a lot of the folks that, you know, have been pioneering AI technology were in academia for a very long time and love to be collaborative and love to share. And that that's one of the reasons I find working in the space so inspiring as well. So Siobhan, I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, opportunities here. We've already yep. established that for a startup, you don't want to go head to head with Google on image classification and you don't want to yep. go head to head with Facebook on social graph kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of the software industry, the majority of the software industry is like, you know, boring back end enterprise stuff, right? Uh, yep. Financial software, ERP stuff, electronic medical records. Are the companies that work in those areas, both the incumbents and the startups, are they... Mm -hmm thinking about AI and aware of it and like working on it? Or is AI for, say, electronic medical records or ERP kind of an open field for maybe some new startups to come in? It's a good question. And I think, you know, again, the answer at the end of the day is it's going to be fairly binary, whether a lot of these incumbents are going to successfully use machine intelligence. Um, and again, one of the reasons for that is it takes a full organization-wide effort to make mm -hmm. this work. And it takes a lot of trust in the system. It takes a new type of trust in the system to make this work. A fellow who does machine learning at Bloomberg said something really interesting to me, which was the biggest predictor of whether or not any of these incumbents will successfully 
integrate machine intelligence in a meaningful way is whether or not somebody in the C-suite has an advanced math degree, huh. which was a curious idea because, you know, the, the point he was making, which I think was a great one, is at a certain point, you understand this stuff is just math. Yes, it re requires a new form of trust because you have these algorithms spitting out outputs that often are not intelligible by us, right? Mm -hmm. If you're mm -hmm. trying to back them out. But at the end of the day, it's just math. And we've been relying on mathematical models for a very long time. So this is just the next step in that evolution. So I thought that was a very curious, curious thought. But, you know, the big thing we're seeing right now is with a lot of the organizations. And so stepping back, back for a minute, one of the fascinating things has been, you know, since publishing these landscapes, we get, you know, hundreds and hundreds of inbound requests and questions and that sort of thing. And if you, if you reverse back two years ago, it was a lot of founders and a lot of companies that wanted to be on the chart or talk about, you know, other people in the ecosystem. Then it moved to the VCs. And mm -hmm. now overwhelmingly, it's corporate executives that have been tasked with figuring out AI for their companies, right? Hmm. And there's an interesting divide in whether or not, you know, it seems like they're going to be successful or not. And it's whether or not they have taken stock of what their data assets are right now and how those data assets are solving problems for their customers or whether they have it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the ones who have are kind of building the groundwork for what you would need to do to build an AI system. And the others are thinking more along the lines of, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but how do I snap a language, a natural language interface on something, right, right? Right. Without thinking about how does the paradigm change? Can I solve new problems? It's more, this is the you know low-hanging fruit AI-esque thing I can do. I'm going to do that. Mm -hmm. where, mm -hmm. where are you seeing the energy and the interest from those large companies? Uh, is it more around we want AI inside our company to empower our workers and our workforce or to take advantage of data we already have? Or, uh, or is it more using data and AI to improve our product offerings to our customers or to market to our customers? So there, there are two categories of things. And so I, the way I separate them out in my head and these terms are sometimes a little hard to internalize is there's, there's what I would call, you know, data science, right? And that's, you know, these data analysts who are going in doing ad hoc analysis on data, they're often using machine learning and predictive models, right? Um, but it's for the purposes of making better business decisions internally, right? Mm -hmm. And that's how a lot of these companies usually start on this machine learning journey. And then it often moves to the second category, which I'm going to call just embedded machine intelligence, which is if we have a piece of software uh, that faces our customers, again, how can we do more, more interesting things based on the data we have already, right? And so, you know, just to contextualize something like that, it's it's Facebook and having a more personalized news feed or, you know, in a lot of different cases where we're starting to see things within healthcare kind of, you know, take a look at all of the types of data in the system, come up with some sort of predictive model of, oh, hey, this person might be in a high-risk situation, and then in an automated way, send in a follow-up, right? Mm -hmm. Just to make sure that that patient is proactively getting the care that they need to, that, that, that they ought to receive. And so, you know, basically where you have any opportunity to create either a predictive or a more personalized experience for your user, that's been the low-hanging fruit for the corporates. Hmm. So do you think AI is ultimately going to be something that's a, an area of expertise every big company develops, or is it going to be something that's sold in by a vendor, you know, the way that every company just buys uh, CRM software from one of the vendors? That's actually a really good question because the most apt analogy I've seen for AI has been, you know, when electricity was invented, 
every appliance out there that wasn't electric before somehow found a way to become electric, right? And then it ended up becoming a utility in time, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of pieces of this ecosystem, again, fast forwarding 10 or 15 years, um, or even five years, you're going to see these machine learning platforms that can give you a handful of capabilities out of the box. That being said, if you have a unique data set, I think a lot of that's going to stay in-house because... You know, one of the things we see in the tech ecosystem right now is there's a lot of value created, but not a ton of value captured, right? Hmm. And I think, you know, being able to iterate on these algorithms and tune them for your users and tune them to the data needs and the problems that you're going to solve is going to be that defensible secret sauce. And for a lot of companies, again, that dwell heavily in data and direct customer interaction, you're not going to be able to afford to outsource that. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Siobhan Zillis. It's been great talking. Uh, if listeners want to find you online, where should they look? You can Google machine intelligence and it should be on the first page. And the new landscape will be coming out end of this month. So hopefully people get some benefit out of that too. Excellent. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you, Siobhan. This has been terrific. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for this very special sort of post-bot day wrap-up episode of the O'Reilly Bots podcast. The podcast will continue. We're going to keep talking to bot creators, and we're especially going to broaden it out into discussions about artificial intelligence. Remember to check out the videos from Bot Day. They'll be up soon at Safari, which is O'Reilly's online learning platform. And if you attended Bot Day, depending on which pass you have, uh, you might be able to download the videos as well through your O'Reilly account when they become available. With the O'Reilly Bots Podcast, I'm John Bruner. Bye.